The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. And I'm your host, Willow Polish. In tonight's news... The Madison Common Council has a packed agenda, including a proposal to change the city's street naming policy and another to amend the city's ordinance on archery. Republican lawmakers push for more restrictions on abortion care in Wisconsin. And in the second half, we take an in-depth look at taxes in Wisconsin and share how you can become a wildlife rehabilitator. This is Christian Knutson and Willow Polish with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in slushy downtown Madison. Yesterday, we reported on a public hearing that state lawmakers held for legislation that would add a referendum question to the ballot this spring. That bill put forth by Republican lawmakers is about abortion. AB 975 would set a referendum to ask voters if the state should ban most abortions once a fetus has passed 14 weeks. The bill contains language for an exception for a mother's imminent death or grave bodily harm. Currently, law restricts abortion after 20 weeks. If approved by both the legislature and by voters, the bill would significantly shorten the timeline for people to get an abortion. This bill was introduced last Friday, and it was heard yesterday in the Assembly Committee on Health, Aging, and Long-Term Care. It hasn't been passed by the legislature, nor has it been signed off on by Democratic Governor Tony Evers, who has vowed to veto it. But we have some new information to report tonight. The Wisconsin Elections Commission tells WORT Today that all referendums to be placed on a ballot must be submitted to the commission 70 days prior to an election. The agency also reminds WORT that 70 days prior to the spring election on April 2nd is today. That means the referendum question cannot be on your ballot this spring. We'll have more about what happened at yesterday's hearing later in the show. Republican lawmakers are once again for the third time trying to push through state income tax cuts as the current legislative session wraps up. Wisconsin Public Radio reports the largest cut would expand the second tax bracket to $150,000 for married couples filing jointly. Other tax breaks focus on childcare costs and retirement income. The cuts would cost the state more than $2 billion in the current budget and $1.5 billion for subsequent years. That's as the state sits on roughly $7 billion budget surplus. Similar budget proposals have been rejected twice now by Governor Evers, who says these proposals didn't do enough to help the middle class. A spokesperson for the governor told the Associated Press that Evers would review the bills. This time, top Republicans in the legislature say they've introduced each bill individually in order to allow the governor to pick and choose. Governor Evers is set to deliver his State of the State address tonight, starting in just under an hour at 7 p.m. It's Evers' sixth State of the State address, mandated in some form by the state constitution. This address is intended for the governor to lay out, quote, the condition of the state and to announce his priorities for the year ahead. The governor is expected to highlight major bipartisan accomplishments. And Evers is is expected to speak to what he sees as the state's top challenges, including workforce shortages, the child care crisis, affordable housing, and infrastructure. You can watch or listen to the speech live on a number of platforms, including for free on Wisconsin Eye. We'll have more coverage of the speech on tomorrow's live local news at 6 p.m. The Dane County Regional Airport says direct flights to Los Angeles are coming back for the first time since the pandemic. 
the summertime flights from Carrier Breeze Airways will fly twice a week to LAX starting near the end of May. Airport leaders have been working to attract airlines back to Madison since the pandemic stabilized. Last summer, the airport opened a new South Terminal, which cost $85 million. Madison police say 120 crashes on city roads have been reported within the two-week span following the winter blizzard, according to the Capital Times. That's counting from January 8th to January 21st, which was this past Sunday. Those crashes ended up causing roughly 30 injuries. The roads, of course, have been a constant headache over that time. Some critics, including former Madison Mayor Paul Soglin, blame current Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway for not prioritizing enough funding or staff to take care of the roads. But Rhodes-Conway said these conditions, especially subsequent snowfall and very cold temperatures in which salt is ineffective, were unprecedented. Others, including former Mayor Dave Cheslovich, agree with Rhodes-Conway. Cheslovich told the Cap Times that a similar storm 16 years ago resulted in a similar situation. Meanwhile, today's comparatively balmy conditions, just above freezing, allowed for some of that compacted snow and ice to turn to slush. In an update today, the Madison Streets Division shared that it is taking advantage of the warm-up and is planning another snowplow of residential areas to clear the fine snow and slush. That started at 3 p.m. and is expected to last overnight. Try to park off street tonight if you can. An urban community farm on the north side is ending its community-supported agriculture program, reports the Capital Times. Troy Farms, which has been growing organic veggies for nearly two and a half decades, hasn't seen the enrollment necessary to keep its CSA program going. Spokespeople for Rooted, the Dane County organization that operates Troy Farms, and several other local community farms, say several factors contributed to their decision. Top factors include the cost of a CSA subscription, competition from local farmers markets, and a pandemic-era financial support sliding away. They also say they'll plan to engage the community to explore new ways for the farm to support Madisonians. The Wisconsin Film Festival is coming to six new or newish locations this April. That's after the closure of the AMC 6 at Hilldale, which this year has had organizers looking for other locations to screen independent cinema. Isthmus Newspaper reports that locations like Flick's Brewhouse and UW's Music Hall will be part of the Wisconsin Film Fest for the first time ever. Other locations that, that had, haven't been a part in years will return to the festival's rotation. That includes the Bartell Theater downtown, which last screened films for the fest in 2012. Also added back to the venue lineup is the Barrymore Theater, which last screened films for the fest in 2017, and this year is expected to be the largest location for the event. The full lineup of films is expected to be announced in the March issue of Isthmus and provided online. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. The Madison Common Council has a packed agenda for tonight's meeting. One item being introduced tonight has been in the works for several years, an update to the city's street naming policy. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the details. When we kept bringing back different names back and forth through email, they kept rejecting the ones that we would come up with. That was Lindsay Higgins, a Madison area developer who five years ago proposed several Muslim-based street names for Jana Village, a subdivision development on the east side. Non-government entities like Higgins can petition to change a street name, but only if Madison's engineering division finds that they comply with the city's policy. That policy, which was approved in April of 2015, prohibits most proper names and homonyms 
and requires that street names be easy to pronounce and spell. Jeff Kwame is the city's land information manager. He says that these rules are largely in place for safety reasons. Namely, if someone calls 911 for assistance, they need to be able to communicate their location without difficulty. But according to an analysis from the city's Racial Equity and Social Justice Initiative, the street naming policy needs to be more inclusive. Alder Derek Field, who represents Jana Village on the Common Council, agrees with that analysis, pointing out that current policy favors Western religion and concepts. The ones that are more associated with Christianity are more you know, commonly available around Madison and seem to have been permitted under the former policy, whereas the words that could be street names that are associated more with other faiths uh, are not. In Hagen's case, engineering staff rejected all of her requested names, Mariam, Khalid, and Habib, to name a few. They ultimately selected street names for her, Eternity Drive, Glorious Drive, and Blissful Avenue. Names that I thought at least were more biblical. Tonight, the Common Council is slated to consider an updated street naming policy. Alder Field is sponsoring the resolution, alongside Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and Alder Isidore Knox Jr. of Madison Southside. The updated language encourages themed names to group streets and subdivisions and prohibits cultural appropriation. It would also require applicants to include the meaning, context, and phonetic pronunciations of each name in their proposals. And the update specifies that non-English names are allowed, but must be spelled in the English-Latin alphabet. According to Alder Field, the proposed policy update would make the street naming process more inclusive and fair. And Hagen says she understands that some names can be challenging for English speakers to pronounce at first, but that people can easily adapt. Could everyone pronounce, you know, the vice president's name when she first got put in office? No, we adapted to it. Or teachers adapting to student names, they figure it out. The policy change is expected to be introduced at tonight's meeting and will head to committees for consideration. The proposal is expected to come back to the council later this spring for their approval. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Also on the agenda for tonight's city council meeting is a proposal to amend Madison's ordinance on bows and arrows. The introduced amendment aims to allow archery demonstrations inside the city with prior approval. WORT straight shooter reporter Willow Polish has the story. Currently, the city draws a tight line on how you use bows and arrows. It restricts you from discharging an arrow except at a range or competition, or if you're more than 100 feet away from a building on private property. If a local bow owner wanted to target shoot without paying for a club membership, they're limited to land on the outskirts of the city, and an unapproved discharge could set someone back a quivering $300. Assistant City Attorney Jennifer Zalevi says the current ordinance has a very general rule on bows and arrows in the city of Madison. You're limited in where you could shoot it. You're not allowed to discharge it. The general prohibition is against discharging it within the city limits. But the ordinance exceptions for ranges and competitions do not account for several other bow and arrow related activities, specifically archery demonstrations. Terry Gianetti is the executive director of the Midwest Horse Fair. She found out that drawback while looking to have a demonstration of mounted archery at the fair this spring. That's essentially shooting bows while riding horses. Mounted archery is a discipline 
that the Midwest Horse Fair, one of our main missions as a not-for-profit supporting Wisconsin Horse Council is to focus on education for the equine community and mounted archery on horses is an important discipline. But that demonstration can't happen under the ordinance as it currently stands. The fair is happening at the Align Energy Center, which means bow and arrow discharge wouldn't be allowed. Alder Isidore Knox Jr. is sponsoring an amendment to change that, which is headed to tonight's city council meeting. He says that amending an ordinance is routine. We need uh, ordinance changes to allow certain activities to happen in the city. In this case, someone wanted to do a archery demonstration event, but it didn't allow that in our city ordinances, so we needed to upgrade it. This revision to be introduced tonight adds another exception to the ordinance. Under the change, if the Madison chief of police signs off on a demonstration prior to the event, then bow and arrow discharge is allowed. If the approval process hits a bullseye, then the ordinance should be approved on March 9th, just in time for the 43rd annual Midwest Horse Fair starting on April 29th. The city council meeting tonight at 6.30 is available to watch online at the Madison City Channel website. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish. Last month, a Dane County judge issued a final ruling finding that Wisconsin's 1849 feticide law does not apply to consensual abortion. That ruling is being appealed. In the meantime, state Republicans have introduced a bill that, if passed, would add a referendum to this April's ballot. The referendum would ask voters if abortions should be banned after 14 weeks of pregnancy instead of 20 weeks under current law. The bill had a public hearing yesterday, and abortion rights activist Kim Gasper-Raybuck was there. Gasper-Raybuck is a frequent guest here on WORT, and she discussed the Republican bill with news producer Faye Parks earlier today. Thank you for joining me, Kim. Thank you for having me. So to start, can you walk us through this latest Republican proposal? What would it do? So Assembly Bill AB 975 brought forward by Speaker Robin Bott and signed on to by 39 other Republicans, is formally or technically designed to be a 14-week abortion ban that they're demanding be put to the voting public via a binding referendum in April of 2024. And so my understanding is that today is actually the deadline for the state to add this referendum to the ballot. Do you think they're likely to meet that deadline in the legislature today? They may well do that. However, the governor has already said that he would veto this legislation. Okay, so from your perspective, this bill is unlikely to pass into law. Yes, very unlikely. And the people who wrote it and the people who put it forward knew that. It wasn't written or put forward for the purpose of creating a 14-week ban, as terrible and problematic as that would be for people who need abortions for very, very important reasons between the 15th and 20th week of pregnancy. It's actually straight up a red herring. And the situation that happened is Ron DeSantos put himself forward as someone who would fight to the ground for a six-week abortion ban in Florida. And then he became known as the person who was promoting and for a six-week abortion ban. And now he's dropped out of the presidential race because the idea of an abortion ban for the vast majority of people in the U.S. is so unappealing. And Republicans in Wisconsin understand that that made them so unappealing to be completely anti-choice 
that they are, quote, attempting to find middle ground with this 14-week abortion ban, but they aren't attempting to find middle ground at all. They're actually opposed to people having access to abortion, period. This is sort of a ploy to make themselves look like they were, quote, uh, reasonable pro-choice Republicans because they're concerned about their seats in April. Okay, I see. So what you're saying, this is unlikely to pass anyway, and this is more just a political maneuver? Unfortunately, it is a political maneuver. I do think it is worth looking at the conversation that happened yesterday in the hearing. I was there for four hours and three quarters. I think it continued on for quite a while after that. It was endless political grandstanding. And actually, it was a debate between the Republicans who are concerned about being reelected and far-right Republican organizations, Catholic Rights Life and other organizations like that who are insisting that they not even discuss a 14-week ban, but that they go straight up for talking about birth beginning at conception and calling fetuses babies from conception and upholding the 1849 legislation that makes abortion illegal and a Class E felony that is punishable by 10 years in jail and a $6,000 fine that is going to be coming up before the state Supreme Court. It will be appealed to the state Supreme Court. And they're quite concerned because in the recent election for the state Supreme Court seat, that court has gone from 4-3 conservative liberal to 4-3 liberal conservative. And Janet Protasiewicz is quite clear that she is pro-choice. So they're quite concerned that she may have the capacity to, along with the rest of the court, overturn the 1849 legislation. So you referenced some back and forth between lobbyists with the Catholic Church and then Republican lawmakers. Can you reference any specific moments, any details of what Republicans might have said yesterday in testimony that stood out to you? A few things stood out to me. Specifically, the Catholic Church brings some of their more aggressive speakers and they do the whole life begins at conception and you're all murderers. And they repeated, and a number of other religious speakers, so-called religious speakers, referred to people who had spoken previously, including doctors, including students who are becoming OBGYNs as murderers, which I wasn't really aware was legal or was not slanderous. It is slanderous. (laughs) Whether you can do something about that slander or not is is another question, I guess. And just repeatedly called any pro-choice advocates all kinds of terrible things, but, but largely murderers. That was a chronic, popular refrain. And then from the legislature, you would endlessly hear the yes, but what if Janet Protasiewicz and the state Supreme Court overturn 1849? Then we have nothing and we have to start from zero. That seemed to be the main debate. The idea being that if you could get the 14-week conversation going, A, it would help Republicans to win the re-election in April, and B, it would be a stepping stone if they were to get such legislation through to even more restrictions, you know, six-week bans, travel restrictions, all the other kinds of restrictions that are um, being added in different states around the country. A Marquette Law School poll in 2022 found that 66 percent of respondents believe abortion should be legal in most cases. With that in mind, is this referendum likely to get enough votes if it does end up on the ballot? So it's kind of a complicated thing because the first two legislators 
who introduced it, actually said that they are opposed to a 14-week ban, that they're opposed to any abortion at any stage in a pregnancy. So what I was hoping to do if I had gotten the opportunity to speak was to ask if they would actually vote for their own legislation of a 14-week ban, but I didn't have the opportunity to speak. So there's that. Even if it was to end up a referendum that people were able to vote on, no, I, I really don't think that it would have a chance of winning because, you know, one out of four people who could become pregnant will have an abortion in their lifetime. So, you know, that means that everyone knows someone who's needed an abortion in their lifetime for whatever reason. And the majority of people are very clear that people with uteruses have to be able to control their own fertility in order to have full bodily autonomy, in order to be equal citizens, right? Equal human beings on the planet. If you can't control your own body, then you can't control your destiny and your future. And so, you know, no, I, I, I honestly think a 14-week ban would absolutely fail. So is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, either about the state of abortion care and access in Wisconsin or just in general? 93.5% of abortions in the United States and similarly in Wisconsin occur before 13 weeks. 93.5% occur before 13 weeks of the very tiny number that occur between 14 and 20 weeks. The reasons for those abortions is that there's a medical crisis for the pregnant person or a medical crisis with the fetus that the person who is pregnant is a teenager or even a preteen or one of those people who happens to have very irregular pregnancies is unaware of their pregnancy. I was one of those people. I had a second trimester abortion at 17 weeks. I was unaware I was pregnant until I was in my 14th week and I needed to find enough money to be able to have an abortion. And that took several weeks or the person is in the position like I was, that they don't have the financial resources soon enough to have an abortion in the first trimester. So that's very important to remember. Also very important to remember that in Wisconsin, even though you can currently get an abortion in three locations, Milwaukee, Madison, and Sheboygan, we have some of the most strict abortion legislation in the entire country. We have mandatory ultrasounds. We have mandatory 24-hour waiting periods, and we have parental consent laws. And additionally, we have extremely expensive abortions. The pills run between $580 and $850, and having abortions in clinic can run hundreds to thousands of dollars. So there are already endless obstacles for impoverished people, black people, teenagers, migrants, Rural people, people who live in the northern part of the state, all of those folks are already finding it extremely hard to access abortions. I think it's really important to know that in 1980 in Wisconsin, there were an average of 20,000 abortions performed per year. And the year before Dobbs, there were only 6,500. And that's not because 13,500 people didn't want abortions. It's because they couldn't afford them or they couldn't access them. That was Kim Gasper Raybuck, an abortion rights activist.
time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Willow Polish, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Nobody likes paying taxes, and everyone thinks the other guy should pay more. But what do taxes look like in Wisconsin right now? To take a closer look, feature contributor David Ahrens spoke to Neva Butkus, a senior policy analyst at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Property tax, sales tax, wheel tax, income tax, gas tax, beer tax, the list goes on and on. Who hasn't thought I'm paying too much and the other guy isn't paying his fair share? Just last week, Senate Republicans passed a bill to cut income taxes for lower to upper middle class taxpayers. Although there was no direct tax cut for upper class payers, say $400,000 and up, there was a different benefit a proposal to eliminate taxes on all retirement benefits for up to $150,000 a year. Obviously, folks who are earning $150,000 pensions have previously had very high salaries. How taxes are levied and who gets to pay what is always changing. And from what we now know, it's not moving in the direction of a fair tax. According to decades of data collected and analyzed by the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, a nonpartisan research organization, since 2004, state taxes on the lowest earning taxpayers increased from 9 to 11 percent, while the taxes on the richest group, those earning more than $600,000 per year, decreased from 11 to 7 percent. That is, the tax burden on the poorest and the wealthiest virtually switched positions. The poor went from 9 to 11, and the wealthiest went from 11 to 7. Not very fair, and it also results in less revenue for services like schools and health care. So how did we get here? I asked Neva Butkus, a senior policy analyst for local and state government at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Tell us a bit about what is the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, or you know, also known as ITEP, um, we are a nonpartisan think tank in D.C., uh, but we work um, in you know, states across the country with partners to evaluate state and local tax systems based on their, you know, ability to raise revenue, but then also um, how progressive or regressive those tax systems are. How would you describe a fair tax system? Is that uh, the same notion as uh, a progressive tax system? I would say so, but to elaborate a little bit, I think we're talking about fairness. I think we're talking about two different aspects. One is obviously enacting a tax system that is based on ability to pay. It isn't disproportionately asking more from 
the lowest earning households uh, in a state or, or, or locality. And then in addition to that, I think a fair tax system and a, and a progressive tax system is also taking into consideration the realities of income and wealth. So for instance, you know, state income taxes are often, you know, somebody makes X amount of dollars a year. This is the bracket that you are. These are the brackets that apply to you. We calculate your tax liability, all done. But what we know is, especially when we are getting into households with immense wealth, the way that their income comes to them is much different than somebody who is, you know, working at um, uh, their wealth uh, and their income is a much different scenario. In most states, the way the tax system is set up uh, tends to favor that kind of um, income. And it isn't taxed the same way that, you know, many of us are taxed when we're getting that paycheck every week or every two weeks. And it allows them to lessen their tax liability as, in, in comparison to somebody who's maybe making like $40,000 a year. I mean, Warren Buffett uh, famously said that his rate of taxation is lower than his secretary's. You are getting your income from stocks or bonds and, and capital gains. Yeah, it's just it's just not the same scenario. The tax system is set up to, to favor you compared mm-hmm. to all of us who are collecting our paychecks. How would you describe the Wisconsin tax system? Would that be progressive or fair or a regressive system? Uh, Wisconsin's tax system uh, definitely leans towards uh, being a more regressive system. As of right now, based on our most updated version of Who Pays, which we released recently, Mm -hmm. uh, the lowest 20%, that lowest quintile of Wisconsinites um, who are making around $29,000 a year, they are paying 10.8% of their income in state and local taxes. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the top 1% of Wisconsinites who are making upwards of $600,000 a year, and they are paying uh, an effective tax rate of about 6.6%. So, um, yes, yeah, so the lowest-income uh, Wisconsinites yeah. and middle-income Wisconsinites are paying higher effective tax rates than the state's wealthiest residents. That came about because of these special favors or special exemptions on certain kinds of income that the wealthy enjoy? That is part of it. Um, I would say that uh, a portion of it, though, can also be attributed to uh, quite a large portion of it is also attributed to Wisconsin's uh, sales tax rate. Um, We know that sales taxes uh, at the state and local level tend to hit lower income households hardest uh, Mm -hmm. and middle income households hardest. And that's just because we have to spend more income than somebody making millions of dollars a year, right? So more of that income is eaten up by sales taxes. And we all pay the same rate on the same amount or, you know, the same item. So it ends up being a larger portion of the incomes of, of lower and middle income households. We also have other what I call kind of gimmicky taxes, um, but it really adds up. Uh, many counties and cities have wheel taxes as well now, which have been instituted in the past year or so. And for a poor family, if you have two cars, that's a $300 wheel tax. This has been instituted differently in different areas, but it's a very, I assume it would be called a, a very regressive tax. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I grew up in the North Chicago suburbs and I, I spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. Um, and there are not many cities across the state that have robust uh, public transportation systems. You need those cars to get to your job, to get to your kid's school, to drop off your kid at daycare and go grocery shopping. And uh, yeah, and if everyone's paying the same amount on that for that tax, for this necessity for transportation, um, yes, it's going to eat into the incomes a lot, uh, a lot more of lower income families.
I saw in your report that excise tax on cigarettes adds up to 2% on the lowest, um, 2% of their income on the lowest income quintile and 1% on the next quintile. Is that common in most states? I would say yes. The cigarette taxes have definitely been a a tax that states have looked to to raise revenue in recent years. Um, And, you know, that's because it's, it's, uh, I guess, more digestible, right? We people, there's reports that can show that can, Mm -hmm. it can lower um, smoking smoking and make Mm -hmm. it less desirable. Mm -hmm. Um, So states have tended to increase those taxes in recent years. Yeah, they they tend to be, you know, deeply regressive taxes. Is this regressivity, is that a trend which is occurring in other states as well? Yes, I would I would say so. There are almost every state has a regressive tax system as of today. There are a few states in which the lowest earning, you know, quintile of their state isn't paying the highest effective tax rate. But in the vast majority of the states that we're seeing, that is the case. That lowest income quintile is paying the highest effective tax rate. And oftentimes in those scenarios, the the highest earning, that top 1% is paying the lowest effective tax rate. Mm. And yeah, the vast majority of states, that is the tilt that we're seeing. There are a few states that when you see that distribution across the board, tend to be much less regressive or, you know, kind of like flip-flop up and down. So you can't really call them like, you know, as regressive as a state like Wisconsin. Uh, Minnesota is a state that has seen their tax system become increasingly more progressive over the years. Uh, Washington, D.C.'s tax structure, California's tax structure, those tend to be a bit more uh, leveled out, I guess, when you're looking at all the quintiles across the board. Mm -hmm. So what are the effects of a regressive tax system on the government's ability to deliver services? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. I'd say the number one thing that we tend to see in really deeply regressive state tax systems is that they don't levy any income tax. I know that's been a conversation piece in Wisconsin Mm -hmm. for many years. How do we get rid of our our personal income tax? Uh, Wisconsin currently has a progressive income tax uh, structure that does keep the state's tax system from being as deeply regressive as states like Texas or Florida, because it's the, the income tax portion is asking more of those with the, the most ability to pay. So when a state does something like gets rid of its personal income tax or goes to maybe like a flat tax, what we tend to see uh, and research has shown is that it makes it a little less predictable and a little more difficult to raise revenue and keep your budget stable. There's just less resources to tap into. Um, and yeah, when we, we see robust personal income tax rates that ask the most of the wealthiest residents of a state, it allows revenues to be a little bit more stable, which you know then allows states to make and, and keep funding the important services that we all rely on. What's your thinking on the flat tax? It has tremendous kind of fairness uh, appeal because everybody's paying the same. What's your take mm-hmm. on that? Yeah, I think that flat taxes and arguments for flat taxes, um, they have mass appeal because, like you said, it, it sounds fair, but there are many legislators that like to pretend that income taxes are the only taxes that people pay, and that is absolutely not the case, especially in a state like Wisconsin. For many households, sales taxes are going to eat up the largest chunk of their income and they are contributing more in sales taxes as a percentage of their income than many, you know, than, than the richest are paying in income taxes. So when we look at just income taxes in isolation, 
sure, a flat tax may seem fair on face value, but when you're taking that into account with property taxes, sales taxes, and excise taxes, what you paint is a very, very different picture about who is actually contributing to fund these state services. And a flat tax contribute, you know, a flat tax while also levying a high sales tax rate at state and local levels does nothing to create a more fair tax system. All it does is give wealthier households a pretty significant tax break while simultaneously asking lower and middle income households to fund the majority of state budgets. So we've been talking to Nina Butkus, who's a policy analyst at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. And thanks very much for your time. And uh, we'll be in touch. Yes, thank you so much. Okay. So the short answer to the question of how did we get here, here being a system where the poorest fifth of the state pays a much greater share of their income in taxes than the top 1%, a group whose income averages more than a million dollars a year. Higher sales, excise taxes, and or car-related taxes will levy it on everyone, but it's the poorest income folks that it hits the hardest. At the same time, income tax rates fell and valuable exemptions on that income increased. Overall, the tax rate tilts in the wrong direction. This has been David Ahrens for WORT News. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains how you can become a licensed wildlife rehabilitator. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to talk about licensing for wildlife rehabilitators through the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. It's been on my mind recently because we have a lot of new license holders as part of our program at DCHS, but also we have an apprenticeship program, if you didn't know. So for the last five years, the Wernley Charitable Trust has been an amazing, amazing partner with the Humane Society to help us fund new positions for people who are training to become future wildlife rehabilitators. And so for the last five years, this year is the first year we've actually had two apprentices, thanks to even more people coming forward to help support the apprenticeship program. Our training day in and day out full time with the support of our licensed rehabilitation staff at DCHS. So there are six people that are in our wildlife department. So just a little bit about us. We are just a really fun team. Of course, I'm biased. (laughs) We've been working alongside each other for a long time. And three of us of the team are sponsors for the state to help train new rehabilitators because that's what our mentors did in the past. 
the way that we got started was through mentorship, through other people agreeing to sponsor us and teaching us all that they know about wildlife rehabilitation. And that also includes our veterinary sponsors, because to be a rehabilitator, not only do you need to be mentored by someone who is in the field actively performing wildlife rehabilitation, but you also need to be sponsored by a veterinarian because wildlife rehabilitators aren't veterinarians. It's not something that we can, you know, do actively unless we decide to concurrently educate ourselves through going to vet school and having a rehab license, which some people do. But typically there's some sort of partnership where a veterinarian is there to help with, you know, assessing animals, being able to perform complex procedures like surgeries, prescribing medications. You know, none of those things are things that I can do as a wildlife rehabilitator. Together, that's how we are able to work with so many animals, is helping lean on each other with the different types of licensures, information, education that we have. You know, not every veterinarian knows about the biology of a barred owl and when their babies are being born and how they, you know, adapt to certain things in captivity or, you know, what is the best method to try to flight test them. So there's a lot of things that each person knows individually, but the way to get those licenses really is through study and practice and time. And so our apprentices are right now scheduling their first exams through the Wisconsin DNR. And so those exams are just, it's a basic exam, um, or at least that's what they call it on, on the website. It's an examination that's written You have to pass with a score that's 80% or better, and it usually is just concepts to try to test the knowledge of rehabilitators to say, hey, you know, you know what you're doing with wildlife, you know about the legalities of having to renew your license every three years, you know how to follow the legal guidelines for wildlife rehabilitators in our Wisconsin state chapters. NR19 is the primary one. There's a subchapter two about what wildlife rehabilitators are and what they do. And it's important to know that wildlife rehabilitators are working under the direction of what the state typically would consider being ownership of wildlife. So NR 1972 actually defines this. It says the title to all wildlife and their offspring held under a wildlife rehabilitation license remains under the jurisdiction of the department and may not be sold, traded or bartered without the consent of the department. So really, the DNR is considering themselves the agency that oversees wildlife because it's a publicly owned resource. At least the the understanding is that wildlife is for everybody in Wisconsin. It's not just one person who owns a certain species. They are helping to govern the whole of Wisconsin, the environment they live in, the animals that are there, and we just help them. So that is what our jobs are. We get our licenses and then we send in reports. As a rehabilitator, we have to send in a report quarterly and annually about all the animals that come into our program and why we're treating them and what happened to them. And then the rest of the legality parts of having your your license besides passing that exam is filling out a bunch of agreements Again, having your sponsor sign off on an agreement saying that they're willing to mentor and support you. And then your veterinarian who sponsors you, who is your consulting veterinarian. And that's a state veterinarian licensed to practice in Wisconsin. And they're willing to consult and assist with the care and treatment of wildlife that are being rehabilitated. So once you send in your application, you have a facility, you have a proper caging, you have different types of protocols, including what are your protocols for care for the animals, veterinary care, euthanasia, pharmaceuticals or drug use, disease transmission. What are you going to do if something zoonotic comes into your clinic or highly contagious? Disposal of carcasses and animal waste, anything related to pest control, any of those kinds of things are all different types of protocols that are usually recommended for a wildlife rehabilitation facility. 
we have lots of protocols at our facility at DCHS from everything from adult songbird care to adult mammal care to, you know, what our sanitation protocols are. So yes, all of those, in addition to being at least 18 years old in the state of Wisconsin, is how you can kind of get through to be your own rehabilitator. So it's been really great having time to be able to mentor new people, the next generation of wildlife rehabilitators. It's not only our apprentices, but, you know, about 25 interns a year coming through and learning during about a 20 to 22 week session each semester, which is incredible. And so I think we've, you know, been working the last five to 10 years at our facility to really get the experience out to people to say, hey, this is a career that you could have. And this is how you could get a license, because the more people that are licensed to perform wildlife rehabilitation in the state of Wisconsin means more animals that are able to be helped. And there's not enough of us out there already. So for those that might be thinking, hey, you know, I've never tried it, thought it would be fun, you can always volunteer. The Humane Society Wildlife Center program actually only recruits volunteers between January and March every year. So if that's been on your mind, better look at the website and get in early. Our website is www.giveshelter.org. Otherwise, you know, if you're thinking you're a student, you're like, hey, I might want to try this as a career, you know, explore internships, maybe try applying there. Again, knowing we have an apprenticeship program and a way forward to be able to get to the point where you can get a license and get really great training and mentorship. That's something that our program actually does a lot of and is, you know, our main focus and has been for the last couple of years. So that's the way it works here. If you go to the Department of Natural Resources website, dnr.wisconsin.gov, you can look at all of those requirements to how to get a license. Really interesting stuff if you want to delve into the legal side, reading our Wisconsin chapters, NR19. Otherwise, this has been a segment today about wildlife rehabilitators, how you get your license, kind of what those steps are, and we really highly encourage people to explore it as a possibility. So if you ever find an animal and you need help and you need those expert folks like ourselves to help those animals out, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. My co-host Willow Polish pulled double duty to also report a story this evening. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and David Ahrens. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And WORT News Director Sholly Pittman wrote the headlines this evening. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And I'm your host, Willow Polish. Up next is Spanish Language News with En Nuestro Patio. Good night.